Uh, our scripture reading today is a little bit longer than normal. It's Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, and our scripture reader is uh, Carol Hoig. Uh, in honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carol. Um, our scripture readers get paid by the word, and so uh, that's really great. Thank you, Carol. <clears throat> uh, so we are in a, we're in a series called The Story of Stories, and uh, again, I want to thank Jim for, for being willing to share his story. Bob Jackson shared his story last week. We'll have another one next week, and these are just uh, little invitations for us to, to see the way that God is, is at work in the lives of, of people here, and it, it dovetails, uh, obviously, with, with this uh, this big theme that we're, that we're chasing. If you were here last week and we talked about this book that might be sitting in your lap right now, or it's at least in the chair, uh, underneath the chair in front of you, uh, but it's this, it's this book that we call the Bible. It's, the collect- it's a collection of 66 different books, but when put together, uh, we call it the Bible, an Old Testament and a New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, and uh, it is, it is the, 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 the Holy Scriptures. It's, it's what uh, the Christian uh, movement has, has resourced as the, uh, uh, a content that God has entrusted to us. But if you were to read through this Bible, um, you would find out, one scholar says that there are 3,237 characters that are named on the pages of the Bible. A little over 3,200 characters in the Bible. Uh, some of those characters we admire, you know, we, uh, we name our children after them, and others are quite notorious, um, even to this day. I mean, how many kids do you know that are named Lucifer uh, or Judas? You know, not, not, not too many of those out there. Um, but most of, the, most of the characters in the Bible are footnotes. Most of those 3,200, you, you probably would not be able to name them. Uh, they're footnotes in, in history. But when you think about God's greater story in the broadest and truest sense, there are billions and billions of stories, billions and billions of of characters. Uh, You're one of them. I'm one of them. Bob Jackson's story last week, Bob's one of them. Jim's story this week, Jim's one of them. Every person who's ever lived or whoever will live is in this this story. Uh, Of those billions of characters, can you believe this? O- only, only one actually stands out. There's all kinds of Christian books that have been written that talk about the heroes in the Bible. And I, you know, I understand what those authors are intending to do, but, but there's, there's, there's actually only one hero at, in, on the pages of the Bible. There's just one, one name above all other names. Uh, the only person who will be worthy of mention when the credits roll at the end of time. His name is Jesus. You know, Jesus is the hero of the story. Uh, he's the hero of our stories. Um, lots and lots of stories in the Bible, but all those stories are telling one big story, and the hero of that story is Jesus. And the, 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 the storyline 
of that story is how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That, that's, that's what we're invited into over the course of these weeks. Today, we get to see how it all starts. So last Sunday, I was just trying to make a case for the scriptures that, that, that actually reveal the story to us. Uh, today, we start part one, and we get to see how this story uh, begins. So first, if you're in Genesis 1 there, I want to start by, by talking about by his word. If you look at Genesis 1-1, the first words of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created. Now, we're going to get into some of the specifics of this chapter in a second, but I just want to make sure that we do not miss something right off the bat. Last week, we discussed the Bible, and you know, one, of the, one of the phrases that we use to describe the Bible is the Word of God. That if, if someone said, hey, do you have a copy of, the, you know, of God's word or do you have the word of God? You, you would probably go grab your Bible and, and say, this, this is the word of God. And you're not wrong. Like, that's an appropriate way to talk about this book. But when we look at how the Bible begins, the Bible tells us that God created by his word. That God spoke and stuff happened. If you're there in Genesis 1... If your Bible is broken into paragraphs, this will be a little bit easier for you. But if you just look at Genesis chapter 1, and you were to check out these verses, it's every few verses, chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 22, verse 24, verse 28, verse 29, 10 times in that first chapter, we see this phrase repeated 10 times, and God said, and God said, First chapter of the Bible, the author of this book wants this phrase repeated 10 times. And God said, and God said, and God said. Right off the bat, we are presented with a God who creates something out of nothing with only his words. God speaks and stuff happens. But he also brought order. So he didn't just create things. He created things, and then he brought order to what he created. Uh, if you look at verse 2, there's a phrase that says, without form and void. Uh, verse 2 goes on to say that it was over the face of the deep. And you might have a version that says, over the deep abyss. And what, what those words in, in the Hebrew language, what those words are referencing is, is nothingness. It, it means that, that, that it's, it's nothing. It's just, it's, it, there's nothing there. In, in the Hebrew mind, this would have meant there's no purpose, there's no order. But then God starts talking, and with his words, he creates, and he creates order. And so right off the bat, at the beginning of the Bible, we are being invited into a recognition that the God of the Bible is one who talks, and when he talks, stuff happens. And when, and when he talks, the stuff that happens has order to it, organization to it. God is not a God of chaos. He's, he's a God of order. Now, can you see why it makes a lot of sense that the followers of the God of the Bible value what God has said? You know, other religions, other world religions, atheists, there's a lot of groups that look at Christians and they're like, you're so addicted to that book. You spend so much time reading that book and it's like, whatever that book says, you think you're supposed to do. Read the first chapter. Right off the bat, the ground is set. In the beginning, God created. How? Then God said, then God said, then God said. God talks, stuff happens. Is it that surprising that his followers sit on every word? Right off the bat, we're invited to sit up and pay attention when God speaks. 
man, if God has something to say, chapter one saying, are you listening to this? <laughs> you, you know, you know what the power of his word, like, you know what he, you know what that happens? It's pretty incredible. So by his word. Secondly, in seven days. Um, Genesis uses the number seven <clears throat> and uses it quite, quite intentionally. And that's very, very true in this opening passage. Uh, if you were to go through this passage and count, you would find that the phrase, and it was so, that shows up seven times. You would find, find out that the phrase, and it was good, shows up seven times. And maybe most notably, you would find out that there are seven days. Uh, and I didn't put this in our notes, but it gets even crazier. The opening line, Genesis 1-1, has seven Hebrew words. Uh, there are 14 words, which... In case you forgot your math, that's two times seven. There, there are 14 words in verse two. There are 21 Hebrew words in the statement about the seventh day. 21 is three times seven. 21 uses of heaven, 21 uses of earth, and 35 uses of God. Every one of those terms is, is used with intention. And they're all in the, in the family of seven. And there's this effort, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the author uses seven as a way of inviting us into this sense of fullness or completeness. See, in, in the Hebrew language, um, you, you, may, you may be very, very aware of this, but in the Hebrew language, they don't use vowels. So it's just letters, it's just, or it's just consonants. And the word seven and the word complete use the exact same three Hebrew consonants. And there's no vowels. So when, when you look at those words, you see the same three letters, they mean seven. You see those same three letters, they mean complete. And so the author of, 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 of Genesis is using this as, a, uh, as a, uh, a tool, as an invitation for us to recognize that in the Hebrew mind, the number seven was the number of fullness or completeness. Uh, and it sets the stage for the uh, use of seven throughout the rest of the Bible. That, this is not an uncommon thing that seven has a notable significance on the pages of the Bible. Uh, if you're a regular attender at our church, you know that not that long ago, we went through a series in Revelation, chapter two and three. And there are letters contained in those two chapters that Jesus wrote to a, bunch of, uh, to a handful of local churches. Do you remember how many churches? Seven. And when we went through that series and we said, why did Jesus write these seven letters? I mean, there's dozens of churches. Couldn't he have written 10 letters? Couldn't he have written 15 letters? Couldn't he have written five? Why seven? And one of the suggestions is that Jesus wrote seven letters to play off of this idea that he meant to say that the, the completeness that Jesus in writing these seven letters is not looking just at those seven churches, but he means this is what I want for all of my churches. This is what I want for every church to be true. And so Jesus is using this idea of seven as fullness or as completeness uh, just as it, the pattern started here in Genesis chapter 1. So God created spaces, and then he filled them. And the Bible uses this rhythm in chapter 1 of Genesis of these seven days, or these seven stages of creation. And as God created these spaces, he then fills these spaces. You know, verse 2 said, without form and void. This idea of nothingness, no, no order. Well, not anymore. Scholars from way, way, way back, even in the second century, Origen, Augustine in the fourth and fifth century, and scholars in our modern day have noticed all kinds of different patterns that exist in the creation narrative. 
And they've often seen parallels between day, day one and day four, day five, or day two and day three, day two and day five, day four and day six. And so these, these like day one, two, three, and then day four, five, six as, as parallels. And there's a number of ways to skin this cat, but one of the ways uh, that, that is seen as the way that God was at work and why these six days parallel the way they do is, one, is to think of them as God creating the space and then filling that space. So, um, if, you, if you were to track with this, day one, God separates the day from the night. In other words, God creates time. Jump to day four, what does he do? He fills those spaces with what we use to track time. Fills it with the sun and the moon and the stars. So he creates the spaces and then he fills it. On day two, he creates the sky and the sea. What does he do on day five? He filled it with inhabitants, the birds and the fish. On day three, he creates land. And we get the little bonus of he creates plants, but he creates land. And then what does he do with the land? Day six, he creates inhabitants. He creates animals and human beings. That's the bonus. And so on day one, creates this space, and then he puts what we use to create to track time. Day two, sky and sea. Day five, what fills the sky and the sea? Day three, land. Day six, what fills the land? And so God is creating these spaces, and then he is filling these spaces. And I don't want you to miss that on day six, there is a bonus, and that is humans. Humans are the climax of God's creative work. There's so much that we could say uh, about this creation of humanity. Uh, the image of God. God is, is, is talking as a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's why in, at the, towards the end of chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our own image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The triune God says, let us make a human being that's like us, in our image. And then it says he created male and female. And it's this beautiful affirmation that God created two genders and that both genders reflect the glory and the beauty, the image of God. It's not an accident that there's two genders. There's not one gender that's better than the other gender. God creates two genders and he gifts them to the world. And there's almost a sense in which why did God create two genders to reflect his image? Well, it might be because one gender can't get it done. God is too grand and too glorious. And it's like two, two genders gives a, a better sense of like, you can't contain this in one. You, you can't contain the image. You, you, you need more. God is more. And so God creates humans, man and woman, gendered, male and female. And, you know, sometimes you, you might like think, where, where did we come from? Well, this is your origin story. You know, over the last 100, 100 maybe 200 years, there's been a lot of challenges to the origin of, of humans. The Bible is offering you an origin story right here. God created man and woman, created them in his image. You know, one of my authors that I tend to enjoy quite a bit, his name's John Lennox. Uh, he's a Christian. He's also a mathematician at Oxford over in the UK. And he, he, uh, I ran into this a few years ago, and I had never seen it before, and I was so, I, I loved it. I th he pointed out something I just never caught. And what he points out is this. That on the six days or the, the, the six stages of creation, God spoke things into existence. But on two of those six days, God speaks twice. And so you have God speaking and things coming to existence, God speaking and things coming to existence. But twice on one day, he speaks. That happens twice. 
And so what are those days? Here's, here's the first one. On day three, God speaks and he creates water and land. But then he speaks a second time. And when he speaks a second time, he creates organic life. And John Lennox says, it's almost like God was looking all the way forward to our current time. And he said, okay, look, there's a lot of questions about the timeline, a lot of options on the timeline. But here's what you're never going to get. You got mud, and then you have something living. You're never going to get something living out of mud unless I say something, unless I do something about it. Okay, that's day three. Now, guess what happens the second time? It's day six. And on day six, God speaks, and he creates animals. And then God speaks, and he creates humans. And again, John Lennox is like, it's like God was looking forward all the way to this moment and saying, I I see. I see all the challenges that are going to come. Where did humans come from? How did we get humans? And it's like God is just giving us this beautiful gift where he's saying, yep, there's animals, but you're never getting from an animal to a human unless I do something. Unless I do, do something unique in the history of the world and I create human life. And so God creates humans, and he looks at humans, and he says, uh, you created them in my image. He says they are, they are good. So this idea of, you're, you know, you got mud, but you're never getting life unless God speaks. You got animals, but you're never getting humans unless God speaks. And it's quite a little gift that God gives us right there in the first chapter uh, of the Bible. Well, this brings us to day seven. And what we read at the beginning of chapter two is that on day seven, God rests. God rests. Like, what does it mean that God rests? I mean, what, what we know, what the Bible tells us about the character of God is that he's all-powerful, that he never sleeps or slumbers, so he never gets tired, so he didn't get worn out doing this creative work. What does it mean that God rests? Well, uh, a, a Bible scholar named Tim Mackey, uh, he's connected to the Bible Project, He says there are two separate but related Hebrew concepts and words for rest. The first one is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease from. So what we read in Genesis 2-1, that's the word Shabbat, and it means that God ceased from his work. God rested. God says, I'm done my part. I'm finished. Ceases from his work. A few books later in the Bible, Joshua chapter 5 uses that word, and it says that the manna ceased on that day. So if you're familiar with the story of Israel, Israel's roaming around. This is obviously further down the road. Uh, Israel's roaming around the desert, and they are getting fed with this miraculous bread that comes from heaven. It's called manna. It's like some sort of honey bread that shows up every morning, and it's good for one day, except on the, on the, on the anyway, anyway. Uh, it, it's, this, it's this bread that they, that they eat. Well, as they move into the promised land, God says, you don't, need, you don't need heavenly bread anymore. And the bread ceases. That's the same Hebrew word. The bread rests. Manna rests. It ceases. It's, it's done. So that's the first idea, Shabbat. The second one, though, is a Hebrew word, nuach. And the Hebrew word nuach means to take up residence. And where you see that word used is in Genesis 2, verse 15. And Genesis 2 rehearses the creation narrative a second time, kind of from a different angle. It's not a second creation. It's just another, uh, it's another account of the same creative acts. And in verse 15, it talks about him putting man in the garden. And he uses, the, the, the Genesis chapter 2 uses the word 
nuach. That's the, that's the word that's translated rest as well. And it means to take up residence. Uh, a use of it later in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 10. It says the locusts came over the land of Egypt and rested in all the land. What does it mean that the locusts came into Egypt and rested on the land? It doesn't mean that they came to, Le- to, to Egypt and stopped their work. It means they came to Egypt and set up shop, set up residence. They, 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 they dwelled there. And so when, 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 when this word nuach is used, it's this idea of God or his people. If they nuach, it involves settling down, settling into a place that is safe, that's secure, that's stable. And you see this verse, uh, that's this word used a, a few times throughout the Old Testament. But it has this, always has this idea of like settling in, of like home, of dwelling, of safety, of security. And what Tim Mackey goes on to say is this. The drama of the story of the Bible is the question as to whether humans and God will nuach together. Will will humans and God rest together? Will they dwell together? Will they take up residence together? Well, here, that's exactly what they're doing. But that drama of the storyline sets the foundation for so much that unfolds in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And I understand why Tim Mackey says it's the drama of the story. But not here. There's not drama here. Here it's happening. That, that's what this is. They are Nuach together. They, they, they are dwelling together. God has ceased his creative work and he's taken up residence. And he's with them and he's walking with them. He's in right relationship with his creation. So drama's coming, but not now. Not now. Not here. Here, it's actually happening. Here, God has taken up residence with his creation, with human beings. So last, all is good. Man, by his word, in seven days, and then all is good. You know, this is probably not surprising to you based on what I said a couple minutes ago, but the word good, any guesses on how many times it shows up? Seven, that's right. Seven times it shows up in this, in this text. God created with his word. He brought order to what he created, brought life with his word, and then he declares it good with his word. This is the start of the story. This is the story that you and I are living every day. This is how it starts, is is things are good. And God says, good, 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 very good. God looks at the whole situation and he says, this is so good. This is just so good. So let me ask you this. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, how do I know if something is good? Like, that's an evaluation. To say something's good, like chocolate and peanut butter is good, and anyone who disagrees with that, you know, I don't know what to say. But like, that, that's good. How do, you, how do you decide if something's good? Clearly, Jesus, amen. So clearly somebody could disagree with peanut butter and chocolate, right? I mean, how do you determine if something is good? Right off the bat, in the first chapter of the Bible, here's what we're getting told. The God of heaven has an opinion. The God of heaven has an evaluation. He he has an opinion about what is good. See, the people of God are invited to realize that God has something to say about what is good. We're going to find out that he has something to say about what is bad. 
He has something to say about what's right and what is wrong, what's in line with his way and what is departing from his way. This is something that we need from God. We need help in discerning what is good and bad, what is right and what is wrong. If you were to read through chapter 2, here's what you're going to find out. Way before the events of chapter 3, which we're going to talk about next week, way before the events of chapter 3, God says, you need instruction from me. You need to know what you can eat. You need to know which of the fruit here is good for you and which one is not for you yet. God gives Adam and Eve instructions before it goes sour. We are in need of God's direction. We are in need of God helping us discern what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And this, is, this again, sets a pattern for God's people. Right off the bat, we look and we realize God is, in a, for our good, God wants us to know what's right and what's wrong. And so it doesn't stop at Genesis 1. You read through the Bible and there's this constant eagerness to say, God, would you keep doing that? God, would you continue to guide us and direct us? Not, 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 not because we have to, but because we want to. You, you, you want to show us how not to drive off the side of the road? You, you want to show us how to navigate the world? You, you want us to see what is good, and you have an opinion about it. So God, would you reveal it to us? Would you help us see it? Right off the bat, God is inviting that kind of a posture, that kind of an approach to his word. Well, God was in right relationship with his creation, including human beings, and God called it good. See, God, God is a relational God, and he wants a relationship with you. Right off the bat, God, God, triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit says, let us make humans in our image. We want to be in relationship with humans. We want to walk with them and talk with them. We want to know them. This informs us right at the start of the story. So man, it is so fitting. It is so appropriate for us to long for a relationship with God. In, in the weeks ahead, we're going to begin to see why we need Jesus in order to actually have that relationship because something tragic happens. But please don't miss this. You were created to be in relationship with God. That was the original design. You know, there's this idea that's bounced around a little bit here and there, but it's like every human heart has a God-sized hole in it. And no matter how you try to fill that hole, you'll never be able to fill that hole because it's meant for God to fill that hole. That, that, that's, that's right. That, that's what Genesis 1 is revealing. God made us to be in relationship with him. That longing, whether you identify it as a longing for God or not, that longing is built into you from day one. It's the original design. But look, God was not just friends with Adam and Eve. It's actually more than that. He was friends, but more than that. Adam and Eve were in partnership with God. The Bible gives this, uh, this idea that, that they, co, they were co-reign. They were co-reigning. That, that God looked at Adam and Eve. He looked at humanity and he said, okay, I've created all this and my work's done. Day seven has come. Like I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not creating anymore. But the process isn't over. No, no. He looks at human beings and he says, I, I, I'm going to, under my authority, I'm going to put you in charge here. I want humanity to co-reign with me, to co-rule with me. I, I have some ideas. You know, there's this relationship between Adam and Eve and God that is incredible. The Bible said that they were naked and unashamed. That as they walked around, they had no clothes on and they were completely without shame. Now, that does not mean that Adam and Eve were so good looking that they didn't care about not having clothes. It means that there was nothing to hide. 
It means that it was just all open and free, that their relationship with God, there was no reason to hide from him. There was no reason to to cover anything. Uh, Our scripture reading today is a little bit longer than normal. It's Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, and our scripture reader is uh, Carol Hoig. Uh, In honor of God's word, please stand. There was just genuine, honest, open relationship, intimacy with the God of heaven, the God who created them, knowledge of one another, fully accepted, fully received so many good things between God and humans, between humans and humans. The the whole thing could be described with the Hebrew word shalom. And the word shalom, sometimes we think of it as just meaning peace, and it does mean peace, but it means everything perfect. It means pervasive peace. It means every relationship is right. It means every system is working right. It means the whole thing works. Every bit of it, it's all working perfectly. And that's what we're getting in Genesis 1, is this beautiful reality of everything working, and then God looking at Adam and Eve and saying, now, it all works, but I'm going to let you have some creative fun. I want you to take it and do something with it. See, humans are resting and reigning with God. Do do you notice this? This is the pattern in Genesis chapter 1. God, for example, God puts fish in the sea. And then it's like God says this to the fish. He's like, okay, like fish, I I got you started. I put you in there. Now here's what I want. I want the oceans to teem with fish. I want the oceans to be full of fish. God actually says to the fish, be fruitful and multiply. So all the Disney movies where they talk to animals, like apparently this is not out out of character. God says, be fruitful and multiply, fish. I got you started, but now, 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 like, go. Go, go fill the oceans. He says it to the birds. It's the design with the plants and the trees, that they would bear seed, and that the, the earth would be full of more plants and more flowers, more fruit. What does God say to humans? Be fruitful and multiply. He created two, a man and a woman, and he says, now go. Go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. I want the earth teeming with humans. I want the earth full of humans. But then God goes one step further with humans. He actually looks at humans and he says, here's what I also want you to do. I want you to subdue it. I'm going to give you dominion over all of it. They are invited to not just fill it, but to make something of it. And this is the idea of like, go build a culture. God God gave them the raw materials. And it's like he looks at Adam and Eve and says, see what you can do with it. Take the garden and go. Maybe, yeah, maybe some circles. Maybe, maybe prune the trees. Be creative. See what you can do with it. You know, it's almost like, are you curious? Like, maybe God thought, like, wonder how long before the first amusement ride shows up. <laughs> wonder how long before they, they do something like that. Or build a skyscraper. How, how long before they, they, they you know, invent the wheel. How long is it going to take? God gave them creative agency. God puts them in the garden, and he says, you've got dominion over this. Under my authority, we're co-ruling, co-reigning, but go make something of it. Go go do something with it. You know, Jim Bruckbauer's story that we heard just a moment ago, uh, he he works at this organization called Groundwork, and I I don't know a ton about Groundwork. Um, I don't know all the work that they're doing. But from, from my conversations with, with, with Jim and from his story right there, 
this is, this is flowing in that same direction. It's this sense of like looking at the world and saying, we, we have agency. We, we can do something about this. We can put our hands to the plow, so to speak, and we can make a difference. We can figure out different ways to, to create food. We can uh, come up with different ways to cook food. We, we can come up with all these different ways for transportation and for, for community systems. Right off the beginning, all of that stuff God has in mind in Genesis 1. He, he looks at them and says, be good stewards of this place. F- figure out how, what wise management is. Take care of this earth. There is nothing in Genesis 1 that gives any sort of an indication that humans should abuse the earth. None of it. It's, it's, we are responsible to manage it, to care for it. Yet cu- culture involves moving it. Culture involves pruning the trees, moving the earth for sure. But not abuse. We're actually called to care for this place, to have an eye towards what is wise stewardship, what's wise management. What does it look like for us to take God's creation and manage it as if he were managing it? To use the creativity that God put into humans to make the world into something. This is all in chapter 1. God invited humans to do it from the very beginning. So this is how it started. Shalom. Everything right. Every system right. Every relationship right. Including humans' relationship with God. Humans' relationship with each other. Humans' relationship with themselves everything's right, and then God looks at them and says, go for it. Go make it into something. I'm, I can't wait to see it. Paint away. That's how it starts. And I don't want to go any further. <laughs> We're not going any further today. I Actually, I want you to bask in it. I want you to consider the fact that this was God's original design. You know, the sun's been out all weekend, you know, as, as you bask in this reality of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, maybe go sit outside today and actually let the sun hit your face. Close your eyes and just recognize the goodness of God's creation. It was all good. And there's weeks ahead of us, and we're going to deal with those weeks. But for this week, see it. See how good it is. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God is revealing his generous heart towards his creation which culminates with his image bearers, the human being. And God is revealing that he loves humans. And he loves humans so deeply that he would do anything for them. And boy, oh boy, does he keep that that promise. So as we come to the table today, and we take the bread and the cup, we often just invite you to consider something, and you're free to consider anything you want as you come to the table. In our services, we have a time of confession early in our service. And part of the reason for that time of confession is we want you to start preparing your heart early. Like, this, is, this whole service is heart preparation to come to the table. And so as we come to the table right now, my invitation to you is come with a thankful heart. C- come with a recognition that this is the kind of God that you're serving. This is the kind of God that you gathered here today to learn about, maybe to worship. That This recognition of a God whose original design was this good, everything right, every single thing right, and then him looking at humans and saying, go for it, paint away, have fun, use those gifts, go to work. You know, you might not love this, but there was work in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's just, it was good. Every time they tried something, it actually worked out. It's incredible. 
That's the goodness that I invite you to the table with today. If you will, please come down the center aisle to receive your elements and then head back to your seat on the outside aisles. Service, please come. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this, uh, this start to the grand story. So, so, so good. Such a beautiful invitation. Such a beautiful picture. Thank you for having this kind of a heart towards the things that you create. Not just created, but created with order. Not just created in order in some like mechanical way, but in relational richness, intimacy, shalom, everything perfect, everything right. God, we look around our world right now and we know that that is not the case. So as we navigate this story, God, would you give us eyes to see what's going on? what the potential resolution to that is. But on this day right now, on this day, would you give us hearts full of gratitude for the nature of the creator God that you are? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.